Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, page 821 in our church Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to actually be in 10 and 11 and in bits and pieces all over Corinthians this morning, but that's where we'll start. Before I read, just a couple of announcements. Um, we've been praying for you all week, just in light of all that's taking place in the world. And if you would like prayer after the service, we would be glad to give it. So if you have any needs, concerns, anything that you're dealing with in light of all that's taking place, there's no shame in that. Um, and if you would like prayer, we would be glad to give it. But we want you to know that we've been praying all week in light of all that's taking place. So um, be encouraged there. Second thing, before we read the text, this is our third week uh, uh, on Sunday mornings focusing on missions from the Bible from our March to Missions month. If you're with us uh, two weeks ago, our first lesson was to come to grips with the fact that wherever the gospel is being advanced, uh, the Christian missionary who is proclaiming that gospel, they should expect opposition. And the opposition that we focused on that Sunday was primarily from those outside the church. Then our second lesson, which was last week, was on what we called friendalism and the great value and quality that there is in an, in an authentic friendship which serves to advance the gospel because of our genuine desire to see our unconverted friends become converted, baptized and becoming part of the church. We, we made note that Jesus was a friend of sinners and we should be as well. And our lesson today, then, is knowing that there's going to be opposition from those outside the church against gospel ministry. That's one thing, but what if that opposition comes from inside the church? And that will be our brief today. And I've taken 2 Corinthians as the, as the book that we're going to learn from because 2 Corinthians, except for 2 Timothy, gives us really... Paul really lets us know who he is. So he gives us that inner Paul and that um, at a very intimate level. So let's read the Bible and then we'll pray. Chapter 11, verse 1. I hope that you put up with a little of my foolishness, but you're already doing that. (laughs) I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think that I'm the least inferior to those super apostles, in the NIV it's in quotes. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. What, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, it was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the region of Achaia will stop the boasting of mine, this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. 
and I will keep doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their action deserves. And just one more line, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. All right, well, let's pray and let's ask God for his help. Father, please be pleased by your spirit to teach us from this text. Show us ourselves. Show us yourself. Save us, God. Save me. And show us why we all need a Savior. And show us why our weakness is never an hindrance to the work that you do. But it's just an opportunity for you to work in unexpectedly powerful ways. So glorify yourself, God, for Jesus' sake now. Amen. Well, I think it's safe to say that most people want to be liked or most people like to be liked. To be liked is to be desired or preferred or rated very well by others. Being on the bad list of people, being considered unappealing, unworthy of attention, not good enough, of no account, and even unattractive can seem like some of the worst judgments possible on us by others. So to be liked is, is currency. Now, being liked is a wonderful thing. In the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the world, personal dislikes, they did not exist. Meaning, and this is to me just lovely to think about, in the Garden, there was no fear of rejection, there was no fear of judgment, and there was no fear of shame because of who they were or what they were doing. I remember that classic verse when I was in Bible school about Adam and Eve, which made me giggle, but it was in the Bible. They were naked, giggle, giggle, and not ashamed. Genesis 2.25, it's in the Bible. But since sin comes into play, now they and we know what is wrong with ourselves, and they, whoever they are, and we know what is wrong with others. And since we were made for community, one of the worst things about being disliked by others is its rejection, as it, the rejection, and they, the rejectors, remind us of our undesirable characteristics, of our flaws, those things which do not measure up about us, and those things that are not good enough, which on one level will always be part of what it means to be human this side of heaven. There's always going to be flaws. But here's the thing. The fact that we may fear being rejected by others should not surprise us because God made us to live in community. And when, that, when the threat is there that we might be rejected by the community, it hurts. It hurts a lot. And as you think about it in the context of the church, it hurts even worse. I want you to follow my logic. How can people who have been saved by grace be unwilling to extend that grace to others? How does that happen? However, it does. However, and this is the good news of the gospel, God made us with an even more essential intimacy. 
and intimacy with himself. Yes, we were made to belong to God first. And then the fear of being disliked by people, it can threaten that order. By wanting to be liked, we often devalue the greater, more excellent affection of God towards us because we forget that our biggest problem has never been the rejection of others, but the rejection of a perfect, holy God of us on account of our sin. And if we buckle under the fear of being disliked by others, we may try all kinds of things, tricks, works, pandering to people just to get them to like us, which is a great disservice to authentic friendship. But beyond that, it may very well mean that we have forgotten the gospel, or even worse, we might have a different gospel other than the one gospel. Now, you recall when Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, this is Galatians 1.10, in the context of Paul being astounded that they, the church, had so quickly turned to a different gospel other than the one gospel Paul gave them. This is what he says. Am I now trying to win the approval of people or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, listen carefully, he has it in the right order. If I was still trying to be please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, that's not Paul saying, you know, I hate everybody. It's him saying, this is the right order in relationship, and it's central to the gospel, and it's central in guarding the gospel. So, Christians, I want you to listen. We have been forgiven, and we have been adopted, and we have been justified on account of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross by faith alone. Therefore, we have all been granted the same privilege of being so profoundly loved by God that the very same love that God has for Jesus the Son, this is John 17, 26, He has for you and I if we are in Christ. Even though God knows every little thing about us, you understand that no one knows everything about us, but God does. All our little naughtiness, in darkness. No one else knows, not all of it, but God does. Meaning this, there is no deeper, and there is no higher, and there is no wider, and there is more, no more needed or secure love than God's love for his kids. So this, this love of God is not saying that you're more likable than you think, or you're better than others. It simply means that God's love for his children is not fickle, this is not performance-based love in order to receive it. It's not rated love. It's deeper than any personal abilities that we may have or we may not have. Which means God doesn't just love you, He likes you. And therefore, as you trust in that perfect love, the fear of being disliked by others will lose its grip. Okay, so why do I say that? Because this is a principle the Apostle Paul ties to himself as he faces that cruel opposition from those inside the church who are being duped, who are, excuse me, who are, being, who are smearing, that's verse 11 of chapter, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 5, do you see it there? They're smearing Paul, these so-called super apostles who have come into the church at Corinth they have brought, verse 4, chapter 11, a different gospel. 
and have wormed their way into the confidence of the people there in that church. A gospel which they think, think they have then the right to smear the Apostle Paul. Okay? That's why when you look at chapter 10 and you look at chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, there's all those quotes in there. Now on one level, he could, he could take all that. Persecution, intimidation, harassment, name calling. That's no real surprise for Paul. If people spoke ill of Jesus Christ and he was God in the flesh, it will happen to all those who try to advance the gospel. It's inescapable. I mean... He was told by Jesus, guard the gospel, spread the gospel, and be ready to suffer for the gospel. So there's, there's that. And yes, the super apostles have mocked and slandered and criticized Paul, and that hurts. And he's ready to fire back with some gospel truth. But it's much more than that. There's a bit of sadness because some inside the Corinthian church have shown themselves so gullible as to fall right into the lap of these super apostles. And there is the danger in that. So it isn't just personal slanders which made Paul pick up his pen and write these two chapters. It's the gospel. It's his care for the church. He's guarding the gospel. So someone said it well. I read this this week. It's a beautiful quote. When our grasp of the gospel begins to slip, we not only lose our joy and fall into fear, but we lose our graciousness and we fall into pride. Hear that? Let me say that again. When our grasp of the gospel begins to slip, we not only lose our joy and fall into fear, but we lose our graciousness and we fall into pride. That is what happened to some in the Corinthian church having given way to the super apostles' gospel. Therefore, they have lost all their graciousness. They have fallen into pride. And therefore, some in the church subject Paul to condemnations, to judgments, to innuendos and smear tactics. So it would be one thing if, if the attacks were, were in a person's face. I mean, at least you could try to defend yourself against a full frontal attack. But how do you fight against a campaign of smear and innuendo, which was happening to Paul? How, could you, how do you fight that? I mean, people can quite easily tune out your case once you have been undermined by others, once some flaw has been exposed. So when people hear um, by others, you're not measuring up, there becomes a possibility that, that they're not actually listening to you anymore. You've lost their confidence. And the Corinthian super apostles and some Christians in the Corinthian church, they've smeared Paul, they've discredited Paul, just like a political party does with their opponents, right? That's worldliness. They call into question their rival's ability, integrity, their competence, in order to secure what they desire. What do they want? They want to win. They want more power. They want more likes. All of it, classic worldliness. And that's what Paul is addressing here. So the question here is this. Yeah, there's opposition there. It's towards him. He can deal with that on one level, but how would he fight against it without resorting to the same smear tactics being used against him? Right? Exposing yourself to even more charges of being a hypocrite or ungodly or worldly, which is all the things that people were saying about Paul there. I mean, you remember, maybe you don't, but in the schoolyard when kids would fight, and so usually the one kid would get pushed, and then he would be pushed into the other kid, and then someone else would push the other kid and push, 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 and then they go at it. Paul doesn't want to do that. It's like walking a tightrope. And many gospel missionaries walk this same 
tightrope. Listen to this. According to the International Mission Board, this is, this is from the Baptist denomination. They send missionaries out in teams. This is what they say. I'm quoting from their, from their website. The most common reason missionaries go home is not due to a lack of money, illness, terrorism, homesickness, or even a lack of fruit or response to the gospel. Regretfully, the number one reason is due to conflict with other missionaries. And so, conflict in the churches. That's the number one reason why they go home. Three points. Number one, set up. And you'll need to move around in your Bible a lot this morning. Right from the beginning of the letter, Paul sets up his case masterfully to not win an argument. That would be worldliness. But to protect the church and preserve the gospel. Please know the difference. If you, if you turn in your Bible to chapter 1, verse 3 of um, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, our God is a God of comfort. Now, okay, he says, our God. Immediately, he makes it clear to the church that they serve the same God, and he's not saying that they're not Christians. I mean, right up front. It's, it might be too simple, but I think it's super wise. And then he says, our God comforts his people in all. All of their troubles, meaning God's comfort isn't selective. He comforts his people in all of their troubles. So when God's people are in trouble, he doesn't abandon them, which was happening to Paul. He confronts them, excuse me, he comforts them. Indeed, he helps them. Furthermore, look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Experience shows that the more we share in Christ's sufferings, the more we will be comforted. And the more we will be able to give his comfort and encouragement to others. And he gives a personal example. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life and self. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. So you get the idea. Trouble comes. Terrible trouble comes with real, authentic gospel work. It is so big that we felt like our life was going to end. However, God brought us through. God delivered us. So Paul tells them quite clearly early on, God will deliver me from trouble. Hint, hint, even the trouble the super apostles are causing me. He's done it in the past. He will do it when it's needed. But not only this, this means that if we experience trouble and deliverance from God, that we can pass on help to you and help bring you comfort and deliverance and spiritual help to you, to you and your trouble. Because that is authentic Christianity. That's what Christians do. When someone's in trouble, they don't abandon, they help. So we can comfort, love, forgive men, each other with the strength that God supplies. But there's more. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Paul says, our conscience testifies, okay? It tells us that we we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in relationship with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. All right, now let's just put this all together. Paul is saying, listen, God has comforted us. God has delivered us. God who made our conscience, 
he affirms that we have conducted ourselves in that church with sincerity, with holiness and effectiveness, and our ministry to you has been clear and understandable. In other words, what Paul is saying is God has been very, very active in our ministry there, which was one of the charges of the super apostles and their followers. Again, you can see this, and we'll get to it in a second, in chapters 10 and 11. Paul is not really used by God. He's just not there. He's unimpressive. He's not a very good speaker. All and on and on. Paul continues on. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. He says to them, you are the result of my ministry. Verse 4, he's confident of this. Not that we are competent in ourselves. If you like, I'm not super Paul the apostle. No way. But, But I am competent. Because, look what it says. Because my competence comes from God. And that word competence means sufficiency, ability, fitness. That all comes from God. Now, we don't have time to go through the rest of the letter to see how Paul sets up his argument, which is going to happen in chapters 10 and 11. But this is the point. Paul is telling them, God is working through my ministry powerfully. And you know it. Indeed, you are the result of my work. His personal experience affirms it. His conscience confirms it because chapter 3, verse 4, his competence means his sufficiency, his ability, his fitness for gospel ministry does not come from himself. It comes from God. Now, why do I say that? Because the super apostles and their followers would boast about themselves. And if you're going to boast about yourselves, essentially what they're doing is what Doag the Edomite did as David wrote in Psalm 52. He grew strong by destroying others. Grew strong by destroying others. There's nothing Christian about that. Or the Pharisees pointing out the sins of others as a way of life. That's the setup. The second thing is the breakdown. And this is how Paul begins to systematically break down their attacks. Look at chapter 10, please, verse 1. He says, you're judging by appearances. Some translations, look at the obvious facts. Don't just look at the surface of things. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. Now, do you see what he's trying to do? He has to prove to them that he belongs to Christ. Now, I don't think that the super apostles are doubting that Paul's converted. I don't think they're saying that he's not really a Christian. That would be going too far. And I bet people in the Corinthian church, they would not swallow that. It was more like, well, you know, We are the ones who really understand. Paul doesn't. We've prayed and we've fasted and we've gained a real grasp of what what God wants for Corinth. We're the ones who know. We are the ones who understand. Join us. That's what they're saying. Join us and you will see it. All the time the implication is, the innuendo is, well, Paul's just not quite there. He's, He's just not good enough. If he was, he wouldn't be opposing us, would he? Paul is not in the inner circle. He's not really one of us. But you see there, Paul is blunt. He hasn't time for that foolishness at all. For Paul, as indeed for the rest of the Bible, there are no inner circles when it comes to Jesus Christ. You are either in Christ or you are not. And if you are in, then you're all, as our president said this week, you are all in it together. Same level. No inner circles in Christ. And to think otherwise is to simply think like the world. The world loves its pecking orders. 
It loves its top 10 rankings. That's probably why some of the reality shows and the song shows, they're so popular because people love to rank and grade and judge. That's worldliness. And because Paul is not so much concerned with all their smears and innuendos, one of Paul's strategies, and if you just take a look at chapter 10 and 11, especially in the NIV, one of Paul's strategies is, is to put it all out in the open. So that if it wasn't for the case for the church before, now the whole Corinthian church, because this letter would have been written, read out loud, now the whole Corinthian church can know what is being said about Paul. It's not in the shadows anymore. It's not secret. That's very clever if you think about it. Because the tragedy is when some Christians fall for these kinds of same things and therein make judgments and rankings we have no business making, it's like, it's like they're in an inner circle when there are to be no inner circles in the church of Jesus Christ. How could they be? How could they be? There are no inner circles and that alone should have been enough to expose the super apostles and the super Christians to the rest of the church. Because if, this is how I see it, if we think that we can rate other people, which was happening to Paul, it means that we can boast about ourselves. Because we're saying that we know something that everybody else doesn't know. But look again in your Bible, verse 17 of chapter 10. Look what Paul says. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. That's important. Look at verse 12 of the same chapter. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Listen to J.B. Phillips' translation of that, a little bit more clear. Of course we shouldn't dare include ourselves in the same class as those who write their own testimonials or even to compare them, ourselves with them. All they are doing, of course, is to measure themselves by their own standards or by comparisons within their own circle. And that doesn't make for accurate estimation. You may be sure. You see, this is what Paul knows. The gospel, and listen carefully, the gospel saves us from the deadly trap of trusting in ourselves and trusting our efforts to, to create an identity. The super apostles and super Christians who were smearing Paul are just measuring themselves by their own standards and making comparisons within their own circle. So if Paul's not running with the tribe, then all of a sudden Paul's not in the inner group. And that does not make for any kind of accurate estimation to be sure. All they're doing is talking themselves up by talking Paul down. And you see the point, Paul, Paul is saying there's, no, uh, there's nothing objective and there's nothing independent about this at all. He knows God has already approved the Christian in Christ. <laughs> Therefore, the fear of living under criticism is removed. And the need to compare ourselves with others, that's irrational. I'm going to say that again. The fear of living under criticism, that's removed for the Christian. And the need to compare ourselves with others, that's irrational. Because the gospel says, in ourselves, we are nothing. That's our great boast. We are nothing. But we have received everything from Christ. And you could add equally. Which makes it okay to boast, but only, see it there, chapter 10, verse 17? But only in the work of the Lord. Because Paul says, it's not the one who boasts about themselves who's approved. 
You know, in other words, Paul, you're just not like us. We really got it. You try, but you're just not there. So it's not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So in this context, Paul is showing it doesn't matter what we think of ourselves. It doesn't matter what others think of us. What matters, chapter 10, verse 17, is who the Lord commends. And if you're a Christian, that condemnation, or the the good sense of that word is a guarantee. Okay, set up, sets up his argument, breakdown, gives it. Now here he just lets it all out. Look at chapter 11 because there he just lays it all out. And the first thing he does, he speaks like a father of the bride. Verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Now I want you to think about that. Instinctively, we may think of jealousy as something bad, but not here. It is, it is God-like because there's a right place for jealousy. Just, for example, marriage, right? Eyes on your own paper, chief. You understand? It's right to say, she's mine, back off. He's mine, back off. And it would be completely wrong to do otherwise. I don't know if you're in the mood for a story, but I'll give you one. This happened probably about a year ago. One night, Nicole and I were at the YMCA. Don't worry, it's not going to be too crazy. And, and we were having a nice run next to each other on the treadmill. It was beautiful. We were really happy. And, and I was looking at her and going, you know, I love you. And she was like, I love you. And we got done. And we were just unusually happy that night. And so she went to go stretch and I went to go get some water. And I left the gym and then I went back in and I saw this man. I, I call him the strongest guy at the Y because he's got muscles. Like he's got muscles on top of his muscles. So I saw this guy at the Y and then I see a lady with dark hair who's got his leg and is stretching him. And just for a nanosecond, I thought, oh my gosh, that is Nicole. <laughs> and, I, and you know how your mind works so fast. I'm like, we were just over there running on the treadmill and we loved each other. And it was beautiful in 28 years, now 29. What is she doing? You know, in a nanosecond. And I walked over there. And I was surprised. A little happy. <laughs> I just bowed up like a bowfish. I was like, this is not going to happen. Not on my watch. So I start walking over there, and then in the nanosecond, I realize it's not Nicole. So I start laughing, and he asked me, what are you laughing at? And I was still all bowed up. And I was like, I'm going to tell you what I'm laughing at. And I told him the story, and he laughed, and we laughed, and it was all fine. God is jealous for his people. Paul is jealous for the church in Corinth. Verse 2, I promised you one husband to Christ. I promised God one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure version to him. So he brought the gospel to them. He wants, them to fin- he wants to finish the work. He wants to present them to Jesus Christ as a father wants to give her daughter to her husband in absolute purity. But you see it there, verses 3 and 4, they're being deceived by these super apostles who are bringing, you see it there, a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel than the one they accepted. So clearly it's not enough to have the right words, Jesus, spirit, gospel, and use familiar terms, salvation. And you don't have to deny the cross, for example, to alter the gospel. You just, you know, play the cross down, play, play the glory up, uh, and you'll head someplace different. Play up what you need to do but short on what Christ has done. Play up the glory and play down the suffering. Play up the triumph without atonement. 
play up the need, uh, play down, excuse me, the need for daily repentance. Someone said, worldliness doesn't need the cross removed from your doctrine, just the cross removed from your lifestyle. So Paul is saying it's not enough just to speak about Jesus if you fill him with a character and a purpose that is different than the Jesus which Paul preaches. You understand? Indeed, so different that some in the Corinthian church feel it's okay to smear a brother in Christ, to slander an apostle, a minister of the gospel. It was okay to grade him, to raid him, to, to pass off induendos, insinuations about him, the very same way which was done to Christ himself in his public ministry. So you know the question, what gospel is that? What gospel is that? It's like they think, those in Corinth, it's like they think they have saved themselves from the wrath of God on their sin, which gives them the right to do what they were doing. And we would be so careless if we fail to recognize these things simply because someone is using the right vocabulary. Now I want you to see what Paul does. He moves from the father of the bride to the minister of the church, a church which the super apostles want to try and kind of elbow Paul out of. Verse five, I do not think that I'm in the least inferior to those super apostles. Why did he have to say that? Because that was being said. But some of the Christians there are so gullible that they're not understanding and they are being fooled by style. Verse six, I may indeed be an untrained or be untrained as a speaker okay so they're smearing smearing Paul's preaching he's like an amateur Greek schools at that time taught rhetorical techniques Paul could have used them but he decided not to use them there verse 6 but I do have knowledge I do have something to say he's saying we may we have made this perfectly clear to you in every way and so even verse 7f look at there he suffered financially to show the great links that he would go to get them the gospel free of charge. Now, why did he say that? Because the super apostles charged a fee. Paul did not charge a fee. He took from himself and he took from others so that he might preach the gospel to the people in Corinth. Do you know that saying, you get what you pay for? That's the logic here, but not in the worldly sense. What Paul wants them to see is that they ought not to judge love by the price tag you pay, no, judge love by the price love pays for you. That's the cross. That's Paul. That's ministry. That's verse 12. He wants to cut under, under them. In other words, let's see how fast the super apostles leave Corinth when you take away the money. Right? When you take away the money, how long are they going to stay? Oh, I really feel like God's calling me to Ephesus now. Yes, yes, he's calling us. We've got to go to Ephesus immediately. Do you know that song, You Got the Money, Honey, I Got the Time? And then has the line, You run short of money, then I'll run short of time. That's the super apostles. That is not Paul. He stays. And if you haven't gotten the feeling already, it's hard to, I don't think, I think it's hard to miss. The super apostles... And some of the church are doing all they can to elbow Paul out. They do it by smearing him, by innuendo, by deceitfulness, by preaching a Jesus and a gospel which is deceptively deceiving, a different spirit. And these super apostles, when compared to Paul, seem like they are on it. And Paul does not measure up. But look at verse 12. Paul just lays it out. Okay, this is why. Such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, because that's the way Satan works. He masquerades as the angel of light. 
It's not surprising that if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. You see this? Paul says, it's a game. Their work is deceitfulness and it's disguised. His is honest and open ministry. Outwardly, they look like angels. Outwardly, they look like they have it going on. But Paul says, put the facts together. Put it all together. They're children of the devil. And when you bring it all out, verse 16, the super apostles just begin to boast about themselves, to prove themselves. <laughs> so, you know, they would kind of like gladly author the book, Humility and How I Achieved It. That would be the super apostles. Or here's a good one, me and God, how I'm more like him than you. Or here's another one, like me, subtitle, why you should be more like me. <laughs> That's the super apostles. That's that masquerading. And it's all worldliness. And so Paul tells the church, you gladly put up with all that boasting? Okay, okay, so let me boast. And this is how we'll end. You see it there in verse 16? Let no one take me for a fool. But if you're going to put up with boasting, okay, let me boast. And do you see what he says there? There Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Scholars tell us that they would go in, the super apostles would go into Corinth saying, you know, we're from Jerusalem. We have some roots from Jerusalem. Are they servants of Christ? And look what Paul says. I'm out of my mind to talk like this. And then what does he do? I, have, I, have, I am more and I've worked much harder. And look what he says about his work. What does he begin with? Does he begin with something like great and glorious? No. What does he say? I've been in prison more frequently. Now Paul is defending his ministry. This is how he defend it, defends it. I've been prison, flogged, exposed to death. Five times I received 40 la uh, the Jews, the 40 lashes minus one. Three times beaten with rods, pelted with stones, shipwrecked, spent a night in the open sea, constantly on the move. And look there, danger in the rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger in the sea. Is there any place there's not danger for authentic gospel ministry? Absolutely not. I have labored and toiled. I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. Think about that. He's charging them nothing to preach the gospel, but he's known hunger and thirst and gone without food. Cold, naked, besides everything, I faced the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. The incredible pressure of pastoral ministry. That's Paul missionaries who plant churches and then he says who is weak and I do not feel weak who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn do you know what he's saying he's saying here's my boast here's my boast I take it all the time from every place for the sake of the gospel that's what he's saying suffering equals authentic gospel ministry. Boasting, success, and the way that the world understands it, that is not authentic gospel ministry. So he's not trying to stay to like the super apostles, you stick with me and we're going to really go places spiritually. It's more like I've been places. I've endured things. Some people really don't like me. Verse 22, there they are, all those things and following, and that is my boast. That is my boast. So verse 11, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 30, if I must boast, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. And then you see how he ends the chapter, chapter 11. He tells a story how he was taken down in a basket like dirty laundry. 
in Damascus. Remember when he goes into Damascus, he, he has power, he has authority. He leaves it weak and afraid. Because it's the gospel. So let me end like this. We all want to be liked. It is understandable. We don't want people to see how weak we really are. Because some people will say something about how weak we really are. But don't get that twisted. God loves you as you, Christian. Just as you are. That's the most important relationship. That's gospel. That's grace. That's Christian. I think it'd be fair to say that many of us have grown up in the church. We've trained our whole life to not show any weakness at all. To not speak of our weakness or to say, you know, I'm getting back on it. I'm going to do a lot better. You just, you just watch me. I'm more serious now than I'll ever be before. Just give me some time. Many of us have been trained that way. Paul would come along. I'm convinced of this. He would come along and he would shake his head and say, hey, you've got another Jesus. And you've got another gospel. If it's all about success and triumph and never failing and never looking foolish and calling people out, then I imagine we would be too frightened to admit our weakness, even to one another. But we can, because that's Christian. We're terrible at hiding stuff. We're better when everything's out in the open. We spent last Sunday night as a church praying for our missionaries. You can go online and you can see the whole list there. And I would just commend, ask you to, to look at that list, but also think about this sermon in light of the difficulties that ministers faced on the mission field. Not just from outside the church, but again, as we've learned here, inside the church as well. Let's pray. This is from the Bible, Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who was tempted in every way that, that we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of, throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Father, will you please forgive us of our arrogance and our boastfulness and self-confidence? We often try to build our own kingdoms or seek your kingdom in ways that lift us up instead of submitting to your authority in everything. We easily believe that we know better, that our plans are better and wiser than yours, as if we were your equal. And God, that is not so. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ we find one who possessed all authority but, but laid it down to become a servant of others, healed the sick, freed those who were demon-possessed, patient with the proud, and died for sinners on the cross. That is our gospel. Please, by your spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, restored him to his rightful glory. By that spirit, help us to learn how we may decrease and that you may increase. Teach us how to point people away from ourselves and towards Jesus Christ all the days of our lives. 
In his glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your attention and, and your time this morning.